When I was in maybe grade seven or eight, I watched this scary movie. It was about the end times, according to the book of Revelation. Now, I just looked it up this week and it got a 15% on Rotten Tomatoes. So it was obviously a very poorly made movie. Uh, but what it was successful in is inspiring a 13 year old boy to open the Bible and read the book of Revelation for the first time. Now, I was disappointed in one sense because the plotline in the movie actually wasn't to be found in the book of Revelation. A few words here and there, but it wasn't, didn't really match up. But what I discovered was that the book of Revelation was actually way more intense and way more exciting than this terrible movie even was. The book of Revelation is perhaps best known for its depiction of these bizarre looking creatures engaged in an epic battle between good and evil. I mean, think about what we find in these pages. We find a seven headed beast. We find the four horsemen of the apocalypse and there's even a lake of fire. This month, we are going to be talking about the book of Revelation, but I've got to warn you right at the front that I am not going to be talking about any of these things. Sorry if that's disappointing. As I've suggested before, with respect to this pandemic, we all want to know what the future has in store. And it's this not knowing that makes our heads spin and our hearts ache. So when someone surfaces claiming the ability to take these images that are found in this cryptic final book of the Bible and translate them into modern day events, well, it can be tantalizing. G.K. Chesterton, the British writer, once wrote, though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. Now, back in the mid 90s, I read a book called Left Behind. I can almost hear your groans now because some of you read that book as well, or part of the series of books that ended up selling an estimated 65 million copies. In fact, so this book left behind in this series was all about the book of Revelation and trying to imagine what it would be like if all of these dramatic events unfolded in our day and time. Jerry Falwell commented on the popularity of this book saying, in terms of its impact on Christianity, it's probably greater than any other book in modern times outside the Bible. Now, two points about that quote. First of all, I just quoted Jerry Falwell. Didn't see that one coming. Second, can you imagine if he was right? Now, there's no way to objectively know what the most impactful book outside the Bible is, but what if it was a series of books that are meant to depict what the end of the world will look like? There's an article that I came across more recently. This one came out in the spring. And the title said, Bible expert warned of pandemic back in 2005. Now, there wasn't any scholarly research attested to this, but what there was was a bunch of comments from someone's Twitter feed, like this one. Edward P. Harrop also tweeted, why are you surprised about the coronavirus? God told you it would happen. Read the Bible. Now, this is essentially how a lot of people read the book of Revelation, if they read it at all. Now, more serious scholars than the above quoted Twitter user would certainly agree with the notion that Revelation does speak to current events. The question is what century's current events are we talking about? Is it this century, our current century's events? Or was it the current events of the first century in which this revelation was first being circulated? Richard Rohr writes that the Bible is an anthology of many books. It is a record of people's experience of God's self-revelation. It is an account of our very human experience of the divine intrusion into history. It was written by people trying to listen to God. And so in Revelation 1 verse 9, we read, 
I, John, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. One of the things you run into when it comes to this book is a number of different perspectives, even on the very authorship of it. Who was this John? Many people believe this was the disciple John, who is also experiencing this vision on Patmos. Others say it was a completely different person altogether. When did he write? Many people think it was probably between 90 and 95 AD, while some say, ah, actually, it probably makes more sense if it was in the late 60s. What was he talking about? Was he describing the Roman emperor of the time and the, the Roman occupation and oppression? Or was he actually talking about something in the future or perhaps both at the same time? Whatever you read or hear or think about the book of Revelation, know this, someone else thinks differently. What we do know is that a man who identifies himself as John was imprisoned on Patmos, an island off the coast of Greece where many criminals of Rome were sent to serve out their prison terms in very harsh conditions. And he was there because of his faith in Jesus. Now, in the first century, Christians were a minority group living under an oppressive regime. Now, this is something that many of us cannot identify with. However, in the last few months, Voices of the black community have been rising up to help us get a sense of what it's like to be part of a minority group living under an oppressive regime. And if we listen to those voices, we might actually be able to help understand some of the experiences of our, the earliest followers of Jesus, including John. In verse five, John refers to Jesus as the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now this made him a threat. You see, to claim that Jesus was Lord or King in a world that already had a Lord or King, namely Caesar, well, that was problematic to say the least. And many of those early followers of Jesus were persecuted. Persecution came in many different shapes and sizes. Imprisonment, in some cases, martyrdom, and in John's case, exile. Perhaps the idea was that if he was causing so much trouble on the mainland, maybe if we put him out on an island of Patmos, that'll prevent him from having this kind of negative influence in the region. In Revelation 1, though, we read this. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see. You see, you can't persecute or oppress someone beyond the reach of Jesus. Henry and Richard Blackaby once wrote that vision is something people produce. Revelation is something people receive. This book's title comes from the first word in John's letter, John's writing. The book in the Greek, Apocalypsis. Now, without really having to think about it, you immediately go to the English word apocalypse, which is where that word comes from. Now, if I was to ask you, what does the word apocalypse mean? You would probably say something like a terrible disaster or some giant global war or the end of the world, something or some combination of all of these things. But the word apocalypse, apocalypsis in the Greek actually would be translated to disclose, to uncover, or to reveal, hence the word revelation. Eugene Peterson writes that apocalyptic is a language strategy for breaking open awareness of the tremendous energies of good and evil contending with one another beneath the apparently benign skin of the ordinary. 
To put it another way, Jamie Smith says, it's like this, I look across the room and I see the blinds on my window. Now from the angle I'm sitting, I can't actually see outside. I can just see the panes of the, of the blinds themselves. But if I were to stand up and take a few steps to the side, all of a sudden I can see what's going on in the world outside. He writes, apocalyptic literature invites us to lean over and get a new perspective that lets us see through the blinders to the monsters behind the screen. You see, we don't need to wait for some future day to witness an epic battle between good and evil. The battle is already taking place and we are right in the middle of it. Last winter, when you were still allowed to travel in this world, our family went to Florida. And when we were in the airport, it was late at night, there weren't very many people there. And as we're walking down one of the corridors, Jude leans over to me and he says, hey, that guy over there looks like Garrett Cole. Now, Garrett Cole is one of the top pitchers in Major League Baseball. I looked ahead to where he's pointing and I said, well, that's because it is Garrett Cole, Jude. And sure enough, this famous Major League pitcher was right there in front of us. Um, we were kind of excited about this. Most was even excited. She didn't really know who he was. And so when a passerby came by and was like, who are you pointing at? Who's here? She said, it's a famous hockey player. And it's become a bit of a joke in our family ever since that she didn't know who Garrett Cole was. When John begins to describe his vision, he says that he saw someone like the son of man, someone like a son of man. Now this phrase sounds vague, like he didn't know who he was seeing, but it's actually a direct quotation from the Old Testament book of Daniel. If you've ever heard the story of Daniel and the lion's den, that's the Daniel we're talking about. After he was released from the lion's den, after being saved by God, he had a vision. And I want to read that vision for you. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, a name for God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so as John begins to describe what he saw, he ties the vision that he was having to this vision that Daniel had some 600 years before. What Daniel didn't know then, but what John did know was who this son of man was. This wasn't just some celebrity. He knew exactly who it was. And we read about it in the very first line of Revelation. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Now, if I asked you to picture Jesus in your mind's eye, what would you see? Maybe you need to close your eyes for a second and do this. If, when I, if I say picture Jesus, what comes to mind? This would be my guess, that you would see someone standing in a robe with his hands kind of lowered, slightly opened, slight gentle smile on his face, uh, kind of just welcoming you in his presence. That's probably what you see. Or maybe you see Jesus sitting on a rock with a little child on his lap, smile and laughing with him. Those are the kind of images that we have when we think about what Jesus looks like to us. But I want to read you about the description that John gives when he sees Jesus in this vision. His head and hair were like white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Among other things, Revelation expands our understanding of who Jesus is. That there is so much good 
that we can gain from reflecting on Jesus' teachings, his miracles, his character, and even his sacrificial death on our behalf. There's a lot of value, and we do spend a lot of time focusing on these aspects of Jesus. But what Revelation does is remind us that Jesus refuses to be locked in the pages of history. I listened to an interview this past week with, uh, it was about a reflection on the writings and the legacy of the civil rights leader, Howard Thurman. And in this interview, they were talking for a while about his legacy. And then at one point they played a cassette recording of his teaching. And so all of a sudden it's like his voice comes to life there in the middle of this interview. Tucked within the pages of John's revelation are the last recorded words of Jesus. But for John, the voice that he heard on the island of Patmos was something more than a cassette recording from Jesus' life on earth. It was the voice of the risen Jesus himself. And he said this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come. As I was thinking about this phrase that Jesus used, another phrase of Jesus came to mind. There was an encounter where Jesus was talking with some people and he, he said something that was a little strange to his hearers. He said something about, that gave the impression that he, he heard Abraham say something. And they kind of turned to him and they said, uh, teacher, you're not even 50 years old. Like you act like you were talking to Abraham. And this is Jesus' response. Very truly I tell you, which is another way of saying, okay, everyone stop what you're doing and pay attention because what I'm about to say next is really important. Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, if you're not familiar with the biblical story as a whole, you might just say, well, that's weird grammar. But his choice of words was very intentional. You see, this phrase, I am, came from an encounter that Moses had with God in the famous story of the burning bush. Moses was like, God, who should I tell people that, who sent me to, with this mission? And God says to him, I am who I am. He basically responds saying, don't try to label me. Don't try to put me in the box. I'm not like one of these other regional gods. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And so when Jesus refers to himself, he uses the same title, I am. He wanted, it's like he wanted to say, I'm more than an, an inspiring teacher. I'm more than some traveling miracle worker. I am the one who was and who is and who always will be. So how do the people respond to that claim of Jesus in John 8? Well, they picked up stones to stone him because he was claiming an equality with God that they could not wrap their heads around. Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters in the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end. And this speaks to the fact of Jesus' essence and his eternity. There is nothing that is outside of Jesus and there is nothing that was before him and nothing that will be after him. Christ always has been and always will be. There's this beautiful passage from Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter one, verse 15 to 17. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Well, what do you do when you come face to face with a Jesus like this? This is what John did. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. 
and I hold the keys of death and Hades. While I was preparing this message, I got news from my brother that one of the little girls in the home of Ninos Convalor passed away unexpectedly. I mean, the heartache is just overwhelming at the loss of, of any life, especially a young life. And I remember as I heard the news and I'm reflecting on this passage, I'm like, thank God that Jesus has the keys to death. And in the next few weeks, we're going to talk about more about this future and who Christ will be. But this morning, I'd like to remind us that his presence is here with us right now. Alpha and Omega, yes, beginning and end for sure, but also everything that happens in between those two. God is in the middle where all of us tend to live. The incarnation, God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus, was an historical event. It happened at a point in time, at a place in our world about 2,020 years ago. But it was more than that. It was a paradigmatic event. It was an event that was so transformational that it just shifted the way that our entire world is. And so we don't just reflect back to the time when God was with us. We realize that because of that paradigmatic event, God is with us still today. Revelation invites us to lean to the side and peer through the blind straight on. And as we do, we see Jesus for who he is, the first, the last, and the ever-present Lord. There's another great line from Revelation 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Now, first of all, kudos to Brenda for stepping up to reading this morning's scripture. I mean, if you're going to choose a week to read the Bible, it probably should be the week where you read the words, blessed is the one who reads these scriptures out loud. Like, it's a pretty good timing. And I expect now that for the rest of this month's series, we'll have people lining up at the door to read scripture because you went in on that blessing. But actually, I want to focus on the last part of this verse, because the time is near. Now, a lot of times, as I said, when people think about Revelation, it's about imagining the end of the world, some cataclysmic events. But this word near actually means more like at hand, like, like close to us physically. It speaks to an eternal and immediate now. The time is right here and right now. There's this line in verse, in verse 9 of this chapter where John introduces himself as your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. I had to read this line over a few times because it's structured a little oddly, but I was thinking about it, that there are three things here that John says are ours because of Jesus. Suffering, kingdom, and patient endurance. And I think it's this patient endurance that Christ empowers us with to get through the suffering and to embrace and enjoy the fullness of the kingdom. We're gonna close our time in a minute here with a song. And the chorus of this song echoes some of what I've been talking about here. You were, you will be, you always are the great I am. And I'd invite you to listen and to sing along with those words, celebrating who Jesus has revealed himself to be. Eugene Peterson writes, the language of apocalyptic vision calls the praying imagination into vigorous participation in what God is doing right now.
And so we'll close our time before the song begins with a word of prayer. And I'm actually going to close with a prayer that came from this morning's reading, Revelation 1, verse 5 to 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of, and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen.